Welcome to Politics in Question, a podcast about our political institutions and ways to fix them. My name is James Wallner. I'm a senior fellow at the R Street Institute and a lecturer in the Department of Political Science at Clemson University. And I am Lee Drutman, a senior fellow at New America and a lecturer at the Johns Hopkins University. We're senior, Lee. Senior, very senior. Although your hair doesn't show it. I, I, I hate to say on a podcast where people can't see me that my hair is not up to the year level. I mean, Lee has well, great hair. I just want to point that out to everyone. Well, thank you. But but what matters, of course, is what's under the hair and under and inside the skull. Well and, played. Very well played. Uh, today, uh, unfortunately for our listeners, maybe fortunately for them, we're going to mix it up just a little bit. Uh, Julia is not going to be joining us on this episode. She'll be back next week. But it's just going to be me and Lee, and we're going to be talking about uh, some raising questions about, I think, some really important issues and uh, some really important kind of considerations about our political parties. That's what we always do. So, James, question for you. What the hell's going on with the Republican Party? I mean, like what day of the week are, you know, it just who knows? Okay, this is my question. It, It seems like the Republican party is going down this deep, dark hole of authoritarian liberalism. They're freaking out about critical race theory. They're freaking out about masks and vaccines and like descending into what, you know, seems to me like this madness. And, you know, uh, then I kind of see Kevin McCarthy, who I think kind of used to know better, who's just trying to kind of manage this and McConnell, who at first was like, no, we don't want somebody like Herschel Walker to run uh, for Senate in Georgia because he's got no qualifications to be like, oh, yeah, yeah, I talked to him. He's good. Uh, You know, Trump is sort of this offstage, sometimes onstage figure who is just, you know, this looming shadow. Everybody's talking about how the election was stolen. The election was stolen. You've got like J.D. Vance and and Josh Mandel trying to to out out Trump each other in this crazy uh, Ohio Senate primary. It seems like the this Republican Party is just is just you know going into a liberal insanity. You've got this like you know new new love of Viktor Orban and and Hungary, which is you know pretty much a authoritarian regime. What 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 happened to the you know old conservatism, which was about humility? Well, I, I, and, I mean, are you and, and me classical you're not liberalism. A, are you telling me you're not a bulldog fan? Is that what you're saying? You don't like the, uh, bull- the Georgia Bulldogs? Uh, yeah, I, I just, I, I just it was like our like one claim to fame up until very I, recently. We? Yeah, I'm, I'm just, I don't follow college sports that that closely. Uh, Look, I, you know, I think there's a number of things that you you just touched on that some of which you know I agree with you, some of which I, I may not. But I, the way I kind of sift through this and try to make sense of things is to first try to understand them. And you know, you mentioned incidentally about Herschel Walker and no qualifications. I find it pretty ironic that if it's a question of qualifications from someone like McConnell's standpoint, I mean, I'm not sure McConnell's doing all that well, given all his qualifications either, you know, and it looks to me in the Senate today, if, if you've been there for a long time or you've not been there for a long time, that you're pretty much acting in the same way. And if you're looking at the house, it's something very similar. Although AOC to her credit did try to shake things up a little bit, Chip Roy on the Republican side tried to shake things up a little bit. But the fact of the matter is if you don't like the status quo, if you're an outlier, and right now, every to my knowledge, I don't know anyone who likes the status quo per se, everybody seems to be a little upset, a little pissed off. 
But it's the outliers, the people, the skunks at the garden party that ultimately come in and shake things up. And usually those people don't have, you know, they're not governors. They're not going to be people who have been reared in the party machines, if you will. They're going to be people who are just naive enough to have a little bit of political sense and a little common sense and to say, like, if I want to try to do something, I actually have to act. If I don't try to act, if I don't try to do something, then I'm never going to be able to do something. I'm not saying that that makes everybody with no qualifications a good member. Some members are good members. Some members aren't. It's a personal thing, a personality thing. But I think it's important to kind of keep that in mind. And when we look about this question of masks and vaccines, and we talk about acting, and we talk about what members of Congress are doing, and we can see that they're all generally acting the same way. You know, it's one thing to have a policy discussion about vaccines. I mean, a completely understandable one, right? My father was a psychiatrist. My mother was a psychiatric nurse. Uh, my father-in-law is an oncologist. My mother was a therapist. Like I have been reared and grown up in a medical community. I have deep respect and trust for the medical community. With that being said, I can also acknowledge at the same time that these are questions that ought to be debated in politics, right? That's the whole point of politics, the question of masks and vaccines and everything else. And we throw things around to say, you know, and I'm not saying you're doing this, but we can, we try to like kind of delegitimize the other side and prevent them from advancing an issue that we care about, like vaccines and masks, uh, by appealing to something else and that has nothing to do with it. I mean, George Washington and Valley Forge, if I hear one more time that George Washington inoculated his troops at Valley Forge, and therefore people who stand up against vaccine mandates are not like they don't love America. Like, I'm not sure. What does that have to do with it? George Washington was a general. They were soldiers. They were voluntarily serving. It was a long time ago prior to the Constitution. That doesn't mean it shouldn't happen. It doesn't mean it shouldn't happen. It just means that we should have a debate about it. And so I'm not sure that wanting to have a debate about these things is the problem. The real problem, as I see it, that you've mentioned is you've kind of been referring to it and you're kind of elites versus the base. It's, it's really talk versus action. It's when we talk about these issues ad nauseum, but then we never really try to do anything about it. And then if we don't ever try to do anything about it, we have to then say stuff even more extravagant. We have to be even more outrageous the next time around because the only measure of our commitment to the righteous cause, the one, the true, the beautiful, whatever you want to call it, the only measure of that commitment is the stridency of our rhetoric when we take away action. And right now, we've taken away action. The members of Congress don't act. And that's why you see increasingly strident rhetoric, I think. All right. So we've seen increasingly strident rhetoric. That's for sure. But it seems like it's not in service of anything other than demonization. And it's just a lot of it on the right seems like pure nihilism to me, you know, anti-system, anti-liberalism. So I I don't know what it's accomplishing. And and I don't see how action is going to drain some of it out. So like, tell me a story of the Senate taking up some legislation and having having a vote on it, and how that will somehow change the the way we're talking about this, especially when you've got a whole media infrastructure, particularly on the right, that is just, you know, its entire operation is just feeding on mistrust and anger and uh, and, and paranoia, frankly, you know, keep watching. Democrats are, are 
you know, putting chips in your brain and, you know, controlling you. Are, are they, wait, are they? Should I, I don't, should I, I, I don't should know. I worry about that? Are you, I mean, yeah, like, no, no, not, not you, not you. I try to, you know, I try to approach things, as you know, I try to kind of bifurcate my thinking on them. And, I, you know, and I'll look at things from a policy perspective and I'll think about the consequences of particular policy decisions. And I'll think about the kind of the, the different views that I might have on it. And I'll try to evaluate it that way. I also then try to think about our politics more institutionally. And what I mean by that is I, I think about the places where we're going to have those debates over those policy decisions and the health of those places. And do they even exist anymore? And I think that's absolutely critical in this environment because it's the first thing is, look, if the American people want something, it may be right or wrong, but it doesn't in and of itself, if like, it, it kind of undermines the representative nature of our system. But but who are the American people? I mean, there's a diversity. So, I mean, I, I'm going to push you on this. Don't dodge the question here. Like, OK, so say we have a big debate on the Senate floor uh, about, you know, vaccine mandates and, you know, Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley introduced legislation to ban federal to ban states from having vaccine mandates like what what does that accomplish like what's the outcome of that in your mind well first of all you're adjudicating the views of people via their representatives which is like kind of half the job of congress right you're adjudicating their concerns and they can see that their claims are being adjudicated that their concerns are being adjudicated. The second thing is the process over time, as it plays out, it reveals new information. It reveals new information on all sides. It gives us broader understanding of A, the information in the issue. It gives us more understanding of how strongly the opposition to our view feels. And it gives us a better understanding of what the American people, whomever they may be, want. Because as a debate unfolds, more and more and the longer it takes, certainly, and the more, uh, you know, outrageous stuff with air quotes that happen in it, the more media covers it, the more people pay attention to it. And all of a sudden they're weighing in and making their feelings known. And then what that does is that it creates new possibilities. It creates new options. It, it could either make, it could create and lead to a, an alternative policy outcome that no one even imagined at the beginning of the debate. It could, it could give, uh, make compromise possible simply by reconciling the losers in the debate to the outcome and it could make uh, compromise possible because you basically you're giving them an opportunity to lose and then they can now have a reason to explain why they're no longer you know dragging out and opposing any one thing in, in that debate any in the bill and this is important there are no vetoes right it's not like you have to get everybody to say yes and as far as a, as a piece of legislation goes, a great example, Civil Rights Act of 1964. Civil Rights Act of 1964. Okay, James, that was that was six that was 60 years ago. Uh, we, we were it was it was a very it was a very different politics then. The Democratic Party was it, it was different because the Democrats were split over the issue of civil rights, and there was a liberal faction and a conservative faction. Uh, there was a liberal Republican faction, a conservative faction. Today, there, there's no overlap between the two parties. You, you have that debate on the floor. I mean, we're having it on voting rights, and the Democratic Party is all in for voting rights, and the Republican Party says that the idea that people should have fair and equal access to the poll is, polls is a, is a federal takeover of our elections, which, you know, I mean, where, you know, that that's, uh, you know, <laughs> I mean, I mean, like, you know, 
Give me a break. First of all, election disputes over election regulations and is nothing new in this nation, certainly federal versus state. And it goes back certainly to the Civil War, if not before. I mean, this is a longstanding dispute. I'm not, you know, it is something that is, it's not a new debate, if I put it that way. Second point is the the parties are divided. One reason why the Democrats aren't going, if they're so determined and they are so in lockstep on this, then why don't they just do it? They don't need the Republicans' permission. Well, I mean, I mean, 40, 49 or 48 of the Democrats are in lockstep on it in the Senate. You've you've got Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema who are sort of trying to figure out what what they want to do. And the way you uh, deal with that is that you don't empower them by saying, we're going to sit here until you say you're ready. You put them in a tough position vis-a-vis their own constituents, vis-a-vis their own national party and funding structure, and you force them to make a tough decision. Yeah, you may lose, but if you lose, then you may get the seat or maybe Republicans win the seat, but other Democrats will be emboldened. There's no one right, clear answer for all of this. But the point is that you don't make things happen in politics by like standing still. I, I, I don't think anybody's standing still. I mean, the Democratic but the only Party place that the House are, and Senate can do are, anything other than stand still is on the House and Senate floor. In the Senate right well, now, they seem to have sure. this view that they can't do anything until well, on the Senate floor I, until they're ready. I, I mean, so so you're saying what they should do is 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 put up a resolution to to eliminate the filibuster and and let things fly uh, things you know land i mean they, they can't land. pass reconciliation stuff right now without you know it's i'm not sure the filibuster is necessarily the problem but to your point i mean look the parties are divided the parties are divided just like they were in the 60s they're diff- not no no james james they're 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 divided in in totally i mean i agree they're divided but the, i mean to to compare our political parties of today to our political parties of, of the 60s is is a that's like you know comparing Apples and soybeans, you know, they're both they're both plants, but very, very different. But yeah, and there's certainly things that are different about them. My point is the Republicans are not in lockstep on like almost any major issue. They're in lockstep. I'll tell you, there's one major issue they're in lockstep on, which is staying united against Democrats so they can make Democrats look bad. And then they can. But that's not an issue. Like, that's only an issue that voters care about insofar as there's no substantive votes. This is why the Senate floor is locked down. It's because both sides want it locked down. The Democrats are the same way. Like, basically, you will see if you have debates, if people vote, if you have people offering amendments, if things play out over time, you know what's going to happen? There's going to be like some, it's going to generally probably be a generally bipartisan vote at the end. Something's going to pass. You just don't know what it is and you can't control it. And that's not something that either party wants to risk. They don't want to reveal those divisions in their parties. And so they don't go down that road until they know that they can pass things without without the without those divisions coming out. This is why the House can pass immigration, but the Senate can't. You know why? Because the House can more easily, under its rules, control and obscure and hide those divisions. Although right now with the infrastructure bill, you're seeing that those divisions are there too. The Senate has a harder time doing it, which is why the Senate doesn't pass things as easy. Like sometimes it doesn't act. And the reason it's not acting is the minority party always. It's usually because the majority party is divided. And if the majority party is divided, it probably means the minority party is divided too. Okay, so tell me an issue on which, if it came to the floor, uh, Democrats would get 25 Republican votes. I mean, you mean, how do do we write a bill right now that gets 25 votes? That's thinking about it the wrong way. The way to think about it is what, and it's pretty much any issue, put infrastructure on the floor, allow a full open and debate, like a full debate, like let everybody participate. Okay, okay, yeah. What's the, okay, to to get, play, play a scenario out. 
Where are we going to, where, what are the amendments? I mean, because it seems to me that no matter, let the process play out, Republicans will put up a bunch of amendments that are just, you know, going to fail and just can try to make Democrats look bad. And then you'll get a, you know, a, a vote at the end of the day, which Republicans don't want to, you know, Democrats don't want to give Republicans anything because they don't uh, want uh, to to water down their 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 bill and Republicans don't want to work with Democrats because they don't want to give let you know Biden have any wins that will help him. So I mean the whole you're you're, you're describing a process that that is divorced from from the reality of of the electoral consideration. I think we both agree that the the, the extent to which elections have overwhelmed governing is a is a tragedy and really undermines our politics. But I, I just don't see. How how we the I mean I think I think and I think we both want the same kind of free flowing de- debate on the floor in which there's you know there's multiple dimensions and you know all, all kinds of potential coalitions that that sort of happen beyond the parties but I, I think given the state of our political parties and the ever present looming election in which the control of the chamber could go either way like th- that is the fundamental problem and it's not a function of action or or inaction or if there's no action it's it's a function of these electoral incentives and party structures not the failure of of individuals to to act well the party structures are just populated by individuals and look you can't have a scenario where the only place where you can decide whether amendments good or bad it makes no difference to me what the amendment is because it's not like the senate is the one that decides and the only way the senate can make that decision is by voting and to assume before the debate begins that some amendments can't be offered because of the motivation of the person wanting to offer them or to um, or that they are their poison pills, what have you, or anything else. What what that assumption destroys the entire like idea well, I, of a sure. deliberative process on the sure. floor because it implies sure. that some per- somebody has the power right. and the authority to say, no, you can't participate if this is what you want. And if you're doing that, you're not only blocking them from the process, you're delegitimizing. And this could be Bernie right. Sanders, it could be Ted right. Cruz, and anybody in between. You're okay, blocking okay. them. You're, they can't represent their constituents. They can't adjudicate their concerns how they think best. The best way to deal with those, with things that we don't like, is to vote them down. Nothing right. is as right. final as a vote. A vote is a vote. And when you lose a vote, it is almost impossible to summon the, the, the kind of motivation to keep going. When you don't yeah. lose a vote or when they won't let you have a vote, then it becomes a lot easier. And one of the things when I worked in the Senate and we would, I would tell members when we were strategizing on the floor and how to stop things, it's like, don't ask for something they can give you. That's like the number one rule. Don't ask for something they can give you because the second they give you a vote and you lose it, then you're like where you, there's no reason to object anymore. If you keep trying to object after that, you're going to be seen as like just like a legislative terrorist. No one's going to like you in your own party or the other party. You're not going to feel nice on the inside. The thing, the way you do is you ask for something they can't give you. Well, right now they're not willing to give anybody anything. That's why. So nothing happens. So, I mean, but what's the point of asking? uh, It just seems like nihilism to me. Ask for something that you can't have and then what? And then nothing happens. Well, that's a strategy if you want to defeat a bill on the floor, right? You need to figure out a way to like stop the process. Right now, we start the process by stopping the process, and then we wonder why nothing ever happens. I would spend yep. all of my time trying to figure out ways to stop the process. The leaders wake up in the morning and do that for me now. It's like, what? I mean, that's how dumb is that? Well, the, why? I mean, if, if you want, wait, wait, wait. 
Wait, wait, James, I'm confused. If if your goal is to have action, then why were you trying to stop the process? Because stopping the process is also action. Okay. Now 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 I'm confused. Now we're meta. Now we're out there. Uh, uh, no, all right. I, I, the point I, is you have senators that are acting independently on the Senate floor to both oppose and advance different pieces of legislation. They are free to do so. And that in and of itself is deliberation. Deliberation is not preordained to end with certain outcomes. Deliberation is the opportunity for people to participate in a debate, to bargain, negotiate, and compromise on the basis of equality, incidentally. And yeah, sometimes you win, sometimes you lose. Depends on how well you play the game. Yeah, in in, in an idealized Madisonian space in which nobody's... In 2004. I mean, the Senate was operating like this in 2002. Really? Okay. Yes. 2007. 2007, when the Comprehensive Immigration Bill was defeated on the floor, there was a 20-vote swing. It was something like 40 to 70, like 70 or 60-something senators, I don't know off the top of my head, voted for closure to begin debate on the bill. Over a two-week period, because of Jeff Sessions, Jim DeMint, Tom Coburn, David Vitter, engaging in legislative strategy, forcing votes, taking votes, voting strategically, at the end of that two-week period, when they voted on that bill to invoke cloture on it, it got like 44 votes. Like McConnell was one of the members who changed their mind. Like that was a huge swing. That was a huge swing. And that tells me, and that swing, look, they may be right or wrong. I'd leave it to our listeners to decide for themselves on any particular bill. I'm talking about thinking institutionally. That swing tells us something very important. That swing tells us, and I don't think that would have, that same strategy would probably not work today. And okay, that's fine. That's the way it works. Well, that's because there's no, there's no Republicans who are willing to support an immigration bill today. <laughs> well, also, and I, mean, I don't think it would work because I think the country is in a different spot in many respects on this issue. I, you know, I mean, it's a complicated issue. And we say there's no overlap between the parties. Well, you know, I work for Pat Toomey, Jeff Sessions and Mike Lee in the United States Senate. And those three members disagree on tax policy. They disagree on trade policy. They disagree on immigration policy. I can guarantee you that, they're, that Pat Toomey and Democrats agree more on immigration than Jeff Sessions and Democrats do. Mike Lee has a different view of immigration policy than, than Jeff Sessions does. We don't get these nuances. We don't see these nuances unless you spend 12 hours a day with these people because there's no process, no votes to reveal information about them. And so all we're left with is what they say about themselves and what the parties say about themselves, which by definition is going to be about unity. And therefore, we get a distorted vision of things and we begin to say, well, this we're just hopelessly divided. And look, we have significant divisions in our society. We have significant disagreements in our society. My point is only that they aren't R versus D. They're, I mean, it's Pat Toomey and Tom Carper agree on a lot of stuff. Same as Wyden, right? But then like but Mike Lee may not agree with those people. On that sure. Uh, Jeff Sessions and, and, and Merkley may agree on process, but they may not agree on anything else. Like there's what issue are we talking about? How detailed are we talking about? What kind of is there really no nothing in the tax code, nothing in which there's any overlap whatsoever between a Democrat and Republican? I, I mean, I, I'm, 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 I'm sure there is. I mean, I, I agree with you. I think some of the partisan policy divisions are overstated. And yeah, I mean, if we had 100 different votes on immigration and different proposals on how to do the immigration, yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course, we, we'd get some really fascinating roll call data. That, uh, that well, a would... great, here's a great example of what we're talking about right now. The Obamacare repeal debate. Like Republicans, basically, I thought I was going to have to get it tattooed on my head that we wanted to repeal Obamacare. In fact, for seven years, that's all we talked about. And then they're in a position to do so. 
They don't. John McCain admittedly voted no. And okay, well, John McCain, one person. Well, how often since John McCain and he passed away and John Kyle was a Republican stalwart, Republican whip, someone who said we're a repeal at root and branch over those seven years, takes his spot. How many times after they failed to repeal it did they try again? In fact, when was the last time they even talked about it? Right. And so that's a great example of it turns out. And as someone who is sitting in these rooms all this time, getting them to vote in the Republican Congress in 2015 on a bill that they knew Obama would veto, President Obama was like pulling teeth because they knew it would make it hard for them to do so if they won in 2016 to not do so. It, it's why Paul Ryan left the, uh, the subsidy money in his uh, in his budgets that he got criticized for and Romney got criticized for in the 2012 campaign. Republicans didn't want to repeal Obamacare. Some Republicans wanted to repeal Obamacare. Some Republicans wanted to tweak it and reform it. Other Republicans probably didn't really care. But they talked about it in such a way. And then they were, at least in the Senate, spared from ever having to take any action on it to reveal the disconnect between their public statements and their own policy positions. And there, so we get this distorted view where we think Republicans, the one thing they, the one thing, right? Three years ago, four years ago, the one thing Republicans care about, repealing Obamacare, literally, like more than like overturn, like getting rid of the, like the commies and stuff. When was the last time they talked about that? Now they're talking about critical race theory. They, they, they just need, they just need something, something to be against. And, you know, I mean, this is, this is fundamentally the problem with our two-party system is that Republicans can just unify by being against the Democrats and Democrats can just unify by being against the Republicans and then we, we don't have to debate anything. So you know, this, is, this is why I'm you know, more convinced than ever that we need to blow this two-party system and you know, create more parties to actually allow for, for the genuine divisions and to allow for these coalitions to, to form. So uh, I, th- I, think, I think it's time to wrap up. So I, I asked you about the, Republic, the Republican Party at the beginning. What brings the Republican Party back from the, back from the brink? Or, or is it on the brink? Is that just my liberal bias? We're always on the brink until we're not, right? I mean, it's always like the last chance ever to save humanity. And then it's not, you know, until like sure. two years from now. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I think it's, I don't want to minimize the, the policy consequences that people may have and the concerns they may have. They're real. I mean, I don't want to minimize that. But I, just, I don't think that it's the, the nature is the same as most people think about R versus D and the catastrophic nature of, because they all end up, I mean, 2004 and, you know, it was going to look a lot like 2021 in like 4,000 years. When you're looking back on it, and you find our version of Livy, but I think yeah, when it but, comes but to we're the not, parties, we're, we're we're living in the present. Not, not yeah, and, and the present when you read Livy seems like a pretty brutal place sometimes. Well, well, sure, but you know, I mean, when that, you think about the parties, though, and I'm all, all for it. anything, anything to shake things up, anything to create more kind of churn, more competition, more conflict. That's what we need. My only concern is if our new partisans from these new parties act in Congress the same way as the partisans we have now. And Democrats and Republicans are acting in Congress the same way. They're acting the same. They're acting the same when they're in the majority and minority under Democrat control and majority and minority under Republican control. It doesn't matter. They're all acting the same. The Senate doesn't, the senators aren't doing anything differently now than they were doing three years ago. It doesn't matter what party they're in. And so if our new partisans are acting like our old, like the par- partisans we have now, then I'm, it's not going to solve the problem. But I, I, I applaud I think, as you know, I, I like the idea of mixing things up, and I and I think it would be very, very good to do so. I just I worry that the the problems may be a bit deeper than many of us 
have been kind of thinking about for a long time. Well, the incentives would be fundamentally different if you're not trying to constantly get into the majority or in the minority and the coalitions would be much more fluid. But and we can see that from other countries that have more parties. From the data and breaking the two-party doom loop, which is actually yes. a really good book. I really, I mean, I, I do want to say I, I use it in my teach. I, I think it's very, it's, there's, and there's a lot of data in there. I usually don't like reading books with that much data, but well done. Well, thank you. So this has been great. I really like this. We should do more of this. I like how you came out pretty aggressively. That was awesome. Um, we're going to return to this question. We're going to talk about polarization when we get Julia back with us next week. And we're going to try to answer or at least ask more questions in a more thoughtful way, but uh, to touch on many of the issues that we've, that we've been discussing today. So thank you, Lee. And this has been another episode of Politics in Question. Thank you for listening to Politics in Question. The show is a joint production of New America and the R Street Institute. And our producers are Shannon Lynch and Jason Stewart. Theme music was composed by yours truly. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.